Hello again everyone. Thank you for joining us as uh, we continue the study in the Holy Spirit. And uh, again we've uh, entered a little sub-series on the fruit of the Spirit. And this week we're going to look at um, love as being the first fruit of the Spirit, as it were. The, the fruit that all the other fruit mentioned or descriptive characteristics of the fruit mentioned derive from. And so we're going to read together 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and I like the NAV translation of it. Verse, um, the last verse of chapter 12 says, And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. The slide that I'm going to show you just now compares 1 Corinthians 13 that we've just read with Galatians 5. And it shows the parallels between what love is and the fruit of the Spirit, the further fruit of the Spirit is described as. So you've got patience and patience, kindness, kindness. Uh, Doesn't envy, that's goodness. Doesn't boast, isn't proud, that's gentleness. Not self-seeking or easily angered, that's self-control and peace. Rejoices in the truth, that's joy, rejoicing. Always protects, always hopes, that's faithfulness. And persevering is faithfulness as well. So you see the parallels here. And indeed, as I've said already, that love is the primary fruit. In fact, all the other fruit mentioned here, the description mentioned here of the fruit of the Spirit, stem from love as the mother fruit, if you like. Every other virtue proceeds from love. So, this is the way I've defined it. Joy is love's hilarity. Peace is love's serenity. Patience is love's temperament. Kindness is love's motive. Goodness is love's essence. Faithfulness is love's devotion and fidelity. Meekness and humility is love's posture. Self-control is love's restraint. And of course, the fruit of the Spirit we've already established equals the character of God. The gifts of the Spirit is the power of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is the characteristics of God. 
and we know that God is love. So it figures that all the fruit and expressions of his character, and also incidentally, let me say this, the way God speaks can be seen in the fruit of the Spirit. He speaks to us in love. He speaks to us in joy. He speaks in peace. He speaks with patience. He speaks with kindness. He speaks with goodness and faithfulness and meekness. And so anything that is not like that is not the voice of God to us. But what we want to establish here today is it all outflows from love because God is love. Tertullian said, of the Christians see how they love one another. But I want you to note here today, we're not just talking about loving one another, that's necessary. But loving one another as Christians is not necessarily of the Spirit of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 46 and 47, If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors so do? Uh, you know, if you love people that go to your church or belong to your denomination, or you love people that are in your family, you're no different than the tax collectors. They love people that were the same as, as they were. Um, and, and you see, what we're talking about here is not a natural love. This love... It is agape love or agape love in the Greek, which is the very love of God. It is a supernatural love. It is a love that loves beyond divisions, beyond tastes. Jesus had the reputation of being the friend of sinners. I wonder, is that our reputation as Christians? It is a bit of a cliche, um, but it is true. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. So what do people see when they look at us as Christians? What do they see when they look at the church? Do they see a supernatural love? And remember that in John three thirty four, 34, um, it says there that the Spirit has been given without measure. So there's no limit to the love that God can give us if we express it to other people. We have as much love as we need and more. God is the God of the much more. And we see this with all the fruit of the Spirit. He will give us all the fruit and more. Ephesians 3.19 talks about the love of Christ which passes knowledge. It's beyond limit. Um, 1 Peter 1 verse 8, 8 talks about joy unspeakable and full of glory. Joy that is without measure. Philippians 4.7 talks about peace which passes all understanding. A limitless measureless supernatural peace and so God is able to do this for us individually and able to express this through us to other people but you've got to understand that this is not natural this is supernatural Jesus said by this all men shall know that you are my disciples that you have love for one another it is the distinguishing mark of the true believer remember the lawyer came to Jesus on one occasion and asked what is the greatest commandment of the law? And the Lord said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And what Jesus was doing there was he was setting love up as the highest of all spiritual values. It, it, it is when he said on these hang all the law and the prophets, he's basically saying that this is what the Bible's all about. This sums up the Bible. Love God and love 
your neighbor. Love is the mark of the fellowship of true believers and all other criteria are strictly secondary to love. John elaborates on this in his little epistle, 1 John, and he says, One who loves his brother abides in the light. Chapter 2, verse 10. God abides in him. Chapter 4, verse 12. And the one who doesn't love his brother cannot love God. Chapter 4, verse 20. So this is serious stuff. All, in fact, we are called to live by as Christians is the law of love. Love God, remain in Christ's love, and share that love with others. Love your, your neighbor, love your uh, enemy, love everyone, honor all men. Gil D. Irwin in his book, The Jesus Style, says, I was shocked to find that such a statement, love one another, um, was missing from the great doctrinal statements of denominations, missing from the great systematic theologies, missing from the cradle statements, and most unfortunate, missing from our lives. That's staggering when you think about it. It's the most important thing Jesus said to us to do, love God and, and love others, and it's missing from these great tomes, these great works of the church. And yet Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13 that we read together, if you have all these supernatural abilities of speaking in tongues, prophesying, having words of wisdom, words of knowledge, having faith that can remove mountains, if you can do great sacrificial acts like martyrdom, but you don't have love, it all equates to a big fat zero. It's all worth nothing. That's the great leveler, isn't it? We are nothing without love. Whatever is devoid of love is no account in the sight of God. Furthermore, this, this fruit of the Spirit, love, is what the world must see to identify us as belonging to Christ. Francis Schaeffer said, Only with this mark may the world know that Christians are indeed Christians and that Jesus was sent by the Father. And we actually find this in 1 John 4 verse 12. We find that John tells us there that no one has seen God at any time, but whenever we love one another, his love and life is manifested to others. So you can't see God because he's invisible, but, but the reality is the way God has ordained to be seen is through incarnational living where we actually live out the characteristic of God in Christ and they see his love in us and they go, that's God. There's God. Describing the first century Christians to the Roman Emperor Hadrian, Aristides said they love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who will hurt them. If they have something, they give freely to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers and sisters in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit in God. I wonder what the world sees when they, they look at me. I wonder what the world sees when they look at the church today. Do they say how these Christians love one another? Or rather, do they say how these Christians hate each other? So much fighting in the church so much bigotry sectarianism party spirit now that's not new you remember in mark chapter 9 verse 38 and 40 
It says that John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. And Jesus had to teach his disciples that he who is not against us is on our side. In the church at Corinth, there was great divisions. Um, One said, I am of Paul, I am of Cephas. Another group said, I am of Christ. And... um, Paul had to come in and, and, and tell them that he, he didn't die for them and they weren't baptized in, into his name, but it's all about Jesus. And so there has been divisions over the years in, in, in the body of Christ, but unity is not uniformity. We, we don't have to all agree on absolutely everything, but unity is more about how we disagree. As Augustine it said, in essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. We've kind of made a mockery of the prayer of Jesus in John seventeen twenty one through our division. He prayed that they, his children, would be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That's First John four twelve again, reflected here in John seventeen twenty one. The way people see God these days is meant to be in us, in our love for one another and for those in the world. And we know that this is a characteristic of revival, where God pours out his blessing. Uh, Psalm 133, verse 1 and 3, Behold how good and how Pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. There the Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. One respected Bible teacher said on one occasion, if there's anything that would keep me away from Christ if I was lost, it would be the attitude of Christians toward one another. Wow. Staggering, isn't it? Um. Before Andrew Jackson became president of the United States, he was a general in the Tennessee militia. And during the war of 1812, his troops were fighting and bickering among themselves. So he called them together and he said, gentlemen, let's remember the enemy is over there. We fight among ourselves so often as Christians and we miss the point of who the real enemy is. And I think one of the problems is that because Christians are so opposed to so much immorality in the world and so much wrong, and there's no doubt about it, that is the case, we're also set against false doctrine in the church. Um, And because of that, we can portray ourselves as being angry. And being angry is not a sin, as long as we're angry and do not sin, as Scripture says. Um, So it's right to be angry at times, but the Bible says we should not be defined by our anger. We should be defined by our love. We can be known for sound doctrine, and that's okay, but we should be speaking the truth in love. That must be the cardinal characteristic of our lives. It was Richard Sibbs who said, We are as we love not as we know. And this is one of the real hindrances, I have to say to you, of blessing. Blessing in the church, blessing in the gospel of the kingdom as we preach it and go forth in the Great Commission. It was Mahatma Gandhi who was a Hindu, of course, and admired Jesus. And in fact, he often quoted 
the Sermon on the Mount. On one occasion, a missionary, Stanley Jones, met with Gandhi and, and asked him, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear to so adamantly reject becoming his follower? And Gandhi replied, oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. Wow. I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It's just that so many of you Christians are so unlike your Christ. Jesus told us, love your neighbor, love your brother. A new commandment, John thirteen thirty four. I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And the Greek word for new there is not, it's, it's a newly invented thing, but it's being presented in a new and a fresh way. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so love one another. Now, the Old Testament demanded that you love your neighbor as yourself. So this is not a new command in that sense. But this is a new law that you love your brother better than yourself, even to the point of dying for him. The command to love wasn't new. It was the extent of the love that we were to have for one another that was just about to be displayed on the cross as Jesus would go and die for us all. And in John 13, we see this depicted in an object lesson that Jesus gives us. In John 13, verses 1 to 5, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper. Now watch this. In close to 24 hours, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. And the cross isn't mentioned in this passage of Scripture, but it casts its shadow over every word. And here we see he rises from supper, a place of rest, a place of comfort, just as he rose from his throne in heaven, a place of rest and comfort. And then it says that he laid aside his garment, verse 4, took a towel and girded himself, just like he took off the covering of glory in heaven and laid it aside and took upon himself like a towel. It says here he girded himself with a towel and he, he took on human flesh just like he took the towel and taking the towel as a symbol of his servitude. Wow. He lays aside his glory. He takes the form of a servant. And he comes ready to work. And then it says, verse 5, After that he poured out the water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. He pours water into the basin. He's ready to cleanse them. Just as he outpoured his blood from his body to cleanse us from the guilt and penalty of sin. And a wonderful thing here in verse 12 it says, So when he had washed their feet taken, and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? He sat down. Isn't that what Hebrews says? After he performed this great work of atonement and sacrifice at the cross, he sat down, the work finished at the right hand of the Father after cleansing us. Verse 1 said, didn't it? He loved his own even unto the end, to the uttermost, to infinite degree. And the object lesson is this. 
Jesus gave himself completely for us. He didn't just wash their feet with a damp cloth. He gave himself wholly to this work. And so in the same sense, redemptively, Jesus gave everything for us, but he now calls us. This is what the lesson is. He calls us to do the same. Verse 15 of John 13. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We are to have this love for our neighbour, this love for our brothers and sisters. We are to have this love for the lost people who are without hope in Christ in the world, we are to have this love for our enemy. Corrie Tam Boone, who suffered so much at the hands of the Nazis and saw her family virtually wiped out, she survived. She ended up having to forgive a, a, a German army officer who was so cruel to her sister Betsy. He came up to her in a meeting and uh, reached out his hand and asked for forgiveness. And she didn't have that in her heart. But she said she asked God to give her his love, his agape love. And on one occasion she said, You never so touch the ocean of God's love as when you forgive and love your enemies. Love is the mother of the fruit of the Spirit, if you like. It's the one that all the other fruits stem from. And it's God's love. It's not ours. It's not natural. It's supernatural. Do you have it? On one occasion, a professor wrote a very learned book on love and the only defect was that the professor had never been in love. <laughs> and when he took the manuscript uh, to the typist to prepare for publishing, the typist turned out to be a, a very beautiful lady. And uh, when, when, it, when their eyes met, something happened to the professor which was not in his book. <laughs> and he was happier uh, in five minutes with love in his heart than he had been for 30 years with love in his head. Something like that needs to happen to our Christianity. Would you agree with me? It needs to move from our heads to our hearts. And we need to experience the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. He commands us to love, but he also empowers us to love. Romans 5, 5. His love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Father, we ask you for that supernatural love. We can't conjure it up. We can't flick a switch. And we certainly can't do it through mere empty works. But this love must come from you. For it is your life. It is your love. And we thank you that you are love. Our God. And you demonstrated your love towards us. And while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Lord we asked you to pour out that love in us. By the Holy Spirit. In Jesus name we pray. And may we show that love to others so that we don't misrepresent you. Forgive us for when we have misrepresented you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you again next time.